For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at Daniel 4 and 5, which really describes what, um, how God views proud people, that he opposes them. And um, we're going to see really an amazing picture of this through the life of Nebuchadnezzar and his, one of his successors, Belshazzar. Let's begin in chapter 4. We read in Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world, peace and prosperity to you. I want you to all know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. So he writes this letter to all the peoples of Babylon throughout the empire. And we need to remember the context in Daniel chapter 3. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had this incredible experience where he witnessed Daniel's companions go into this fiery furnace and emerge unscathed. So he had a number of intellectual reasons to believe in God, but it becomes very clear in this narrative that he had not turned to God really in genuine faith. But this event really, I think, becomes a turning point for Nebuchadnezzar, who, from all accounts, becomes a true believer in God. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity, but one night I had a dream that frightened me. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. Nebuchadnezzar really had reached the pinnacle. He solidified his kingdom. He was incredibly wealthy. We know that he was an architect and really uh, oversaw incredible building projects throughout Babylon. And he was sleeping or trying to go to sleep in his palace and then he was awoken by this intense dream. And so we're told in verse 7, when all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they couldn't tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. His name was Belshazzar after my God. I said to him, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. So this incredible dream was interrupted by a messenger, a voice, as we see, is from God. The messenger shouted, Cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. So this messenger, which we'll later find out, was actually an angel of the Lord, shouted this command. Well, the Lord's messenger continued, but they leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of a human mind. 
The Lord's messenger continued, for this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the Holy One so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowliest of people. So the messenger declares the purpose of this dream, this message, that Nebuchadnezzar was failing to acknowledge the sovereignty and power of God, that he indeed was the one who gives kings their kingdoms and allows rulers to rule for a period of time. Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, that was the dream that I had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy God is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and by what it means. Immediately, Daniel hears this dream and he knows exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is talking about. And apparently he was reluctant to tell Nebuchadnezzar, probably because spending all this time with Nebuchadnezzar in his royal court, he probably built somewhat of a warm friendship with Nebuchadnezzar. So he was reluctant to tell him the meaning of the dream. Uh, it says Daniel was overcome for a time, which literally means that he was stupefied for one hour. <laughs> now, he probably wasn't just standing there for one hour. This was probably a... Um, just a saying, you know, that, that it was a period of time that had passed. Just like, you know, today, if you said, yeah, man, he's been in there in the bathroom there for a minute. We don't literally mean that he spent a minute in the bathroom. What we mean to say is that he's probably in the bathroom suffering from Montezuma's revenge, right? <laughs> and that he's been in there for a really long time. And so this is probably what Daniel was talking about, or this is what he experienced when he was uh, overcome for a time that he was stunned by this dream. Daniel replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. The tree you saw that was growing very tall and strong, that tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up into the heavens and you rule the ends of the earth. This is what the dream means, your majesty. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone that he chooses. These seven periods of time, these could refer to seven years, could mean seven months, it also could mean seven seasons, which would be equivalent to about a year and a half. So it's not really clear. But he says, the stump and roots of the tree that were left on the ground, this means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you've learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning, do what's right, and break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps you will then continue to prosper. So, Daniel tells him the meaning of this dream, but he also says that you don't need to experience these things if you do two things. That is, stop sinning and doing what is right, 
which in the context probably refers to Nebuchadnezzar admitting and acknowledging God's sovereignty rather than claiming for himself what was really due to God. And secondly, he said that you need to be merciful to the poor. Nebuchadnezzar probably grew incredibly wealthy on the backs of the poor inhabitants of Babylon. And he certainly was allowing the rich, the wealthy of Babylon to exploit the poor. So Daniel says that God really upholds the purpose or the cause of the poor and that he won't allow that to just stand. Verse 28, but all these things did happen to the, to the king. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. So apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar listened for about 12 months. You know how that is when you feel convicted about something and you decide, okay, I'm going to try to really follow God or I'm going to try to really hand this over. And you do it for a short period of time, but then you start to forget or maybe start to justify, well, it's not really that bad. I mean, maybe I was just making a big deal of that. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the flat roof of the royal palace, probably in the midst of his hanging gardens, one of the ancient wonders of the world, he looked out across the city and he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Notice the pronouns he's using. By my own mighty power. By my majestic splendor. He was doing exactly what Daniel told him not to do. What Daniel told him to turn away from. And it's interesting because archaeologists have done numerous digs in this area and have uncovered in seven districts surrounding Babylon these buildings where they were able to uncover bricks from this period of time that have images of Nebuchadnezzar or his name stamped on them. So literally, he built this city with his own hands. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you're no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you're going to eat grass like a cow. Pretty crazy. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and he lived this way until his hair was as long uh, as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So, you know, he, he basically lost his mind and he was out in the wilderness um, living like an animal. And there are actually documented conditions where people believe that they're actually animals. Um, it's it's a, a mental condition that pe sometimes hits people. I remember back in college, uh, one of my friends, he was slightly insane. And um, he used to claim that on a full moon, he would turn into a werewolf. <laughs> and you're like, dude, come on. And uh, he would take this so seriously that one time he went to a party and he's like, hey, so, um, you know, what kind of beer you guys got here? And they're like, uh, Coors. He's like, I can't drink that. You're like, why? He's like, dude, don't you know that silver bullets kill werewolves? <laughs> anyway. 
<laughs> so let's think about some lessons from Nebuchadnezzar's madness. What can we learn from it? I think a couple things. First of all, we learn about the sleep of the prideful. You know, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar, he was content, that he was prosperous. He had all the things he wanted, but the one thing that eluded him was sleep. He was unable to sleep. And, you know, very few people really reached the pinnacle that Nebuchadnezzar had reached in his life. Really, there isn't anyone around today that had the kind of accomplishments and power that Nebuchadnezzar did. He was a world ruler with incalculable riches and wealth. And yet, we're told that he was unable to sleep. You know, one thing that guys like Nebuchadnezzar know is that despite having everything that you want, there's really a deep misery that comes with it. Because no matter how much you gain, no matter how much you own, no matter how much power you consume, it's never enough. You know, it really speaks to the fact that the human soul really desires and needs something way bigger than itself. And you can pour all the empires into the, of the world into this hole and it's never going to satisfy it. And that's exactly why Nebuchadnezzar, despite all of his accomplishments, despite all of his power, despite all of his prosperity, was unable to sleep. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar's madness tells us a little bit about the heart of pride. You know, when you look at pride, a lot of times, you know, looks at things in life and says, I built it, I did it. That's exactly what he did as he was standing on the top of his hanging gardens in his palace. He looked across the city and he said, I built all this. I made all of this. And your pride wells up when you look at your accomplishments, when you look at your possessions, the things that you've gained. In addition to that, pride takes many forms. You know, you can detect pride in a good life and in a hard life as well. When we're talking about pride in a good life, you know, we say things like, well, I worked hard for this. I uh, devoted myself to this. I did all of these things better than other people. I did it more ethically than other people, and that's why I'm owed these things. But in a hard life, you see the same thing. It's just the opposite, where you say, I've had a really hard life. I've experienced things that most people have never experienced in their lives. I'm suffering than most people, and therefore, I'm owed this. I deserve this because of all the things that I'm going through. You know, pride says I deserve what I have and I'm owed more than really I'm getting. And there's this sense that, you know, the things that I have, I earn those things. I'm owed those things. And really, I think that a lot of times uh, we get upset when we don't get the things that we want because we have this sense of entitlement. You know, really, 
when you look at pride, it represents sort of a, a type of cosmic plagiarism, to use Tim Keller's terminology. Cosmic plagiarism. You know, that's where you take something that has been given to you as a gift, and you claim to be the one who's created it or authored it. You know, and really that's what we're doing when we take pride in the things that we've accomplished. We're taking ownership of something that really was given to us as a gift. You know, if we admit that all the good things in our life comes to us as a gift, then we've lost control. That's, you know, really the motivation behind why we resist depending on God. You know, imagine if, let's say, I happen to publish one of J.K. Rowling's unpublished works under my name. She'd be probably pretty upset about that, right? Rightfully so. And why would she, why would she be right to be upset that I, that I plagiarized her work? What's so wrong with plagiarism? Well, when you plagiarize somebody's work, you're taking away from that person what is due to them. You know, when you plagiarize somebody's work, you're seizing control of something that really should be under their control. And so likewise, you could see why we don't want to look to God and say, all of the things that I have, all the good things that I have in life are a gift from you because when we do that, we're letting go of control. And really, we have to consider to ourselves how much of what we have is really things that we've earned? How much of what we are is a result of things that we have done? Let's just be honest. Did you happen to choose your race? Did you happen to choose the socioeconomic background that you were born into? Did you choose what country you were born into? None of those things were your decision. Don't you think life would be a little bit different for you if you grew up, let's say, in 14th century Europe during the bubonic plague versus in modern America? I think, I think things would be a little bit different for you, right? What about your upbringing? You know, we would say that our upbringing really is so formative to who we are, and yet we didn't choose any of those things. And so in what sense do we really... How can we say that we really have earned the things that we have? You know, your intellect, your talents, your gifting, your drive, your personality, those things that you look at and say, this is what I'm going to stake my life on to make myself successful. You didn't earn any of those things. And yet they're essential to your success. You know, humility recognizes that every good thing in life is a gift. It's where we acknowledge all that we are, all that we have, those good things come from God. Now, some people might say, that sounds terrible. You know, so I'm supposed to walk around and act like I don't deserve anything? Sounds like uh, you have a problem with self-esteem. And yet, I think people who say that are really failing to make a distinction here. That, you know, when we talk about humility, humility suggests that we are receiving good things as a gift from God. 
Because really, there's a kind of false humility that says, I don't deserve this, so I don't want it. You know, I didn't earn it. I didn't work hard for it. And so therefore, I don't want it. It's sort of a reverse pride that we fall into. And really, it's a type of false humility. You know, humility sees that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us a gift. And that's an amazing thing. Because if he gave us what we deserve, I think we'd be fairly unhappy with that. Because we deserve judgment according to the Bible. But he gives us good things as a gift. And there's something amazing when you take that posture that all the good things in your life happen to be a gift from God. That really changes your demeanor. It doesn't make you depressed about your life. It doesn't give you low self-esteem. It actually makes you happy because, you know, when you go into the day thinking it's going to be really bad and it turns out better, you're happy, right? And so when God gives you grace, even though you didn't think you deserved it, it's a surprise. You're happy that things turned out better than they could have or that they should have. And really, a joyful life is that which receives everything as a gift. And so, um, those of us who know what it's like to encounter the grace of God, the unmerited gift of God, know that it's a life filled with joy. Whereas a life of entitlement, a life that's filled with this I'm owed mentality is one that's miserable because it drives people away. It demands from the people around him. So what was God trying to teach old Nebuchadnezzar? I think, first of all, pride defaces humanity. You know, uh, essentially, what he was trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar is that when we spiral into pridefulness, it strips us of who we are. It strips us of our humanity. It makes us less than a person. And it's ironic because in our desire to be more than what we are, we end up becoming less than who we are. You know, when we aspire to be more than a man, we actually become less than a man is really the, the, the point of this story here. And that's the reason why God essentially made Nebuchadnezzar um, you know, go out into this field for a period of time and feed on grass. I think he was purposely trying to show him this is essentially what would happen to you anyway if you continued to descend into pride, that you would become less than what you really are. I think it raises a question, you know, in what way does pride make you more like an animal than a human? I think one thing is that, you know, when you look at animals, uh, they, they are incapable of empathy, okay? We might argue about that a little bit, but, you know, an animal can't imagine what it's like to be you, right? I used to live with a cat. And sometimes, you know, I'd sit down on the couch, I'd be sort of bummed out, and then, you know, this cat would come up to next to me and nuzzle me, and sometimes it would seem like it was sympathizing with me because I was feeling bad about myself, but then I realized it was actually just hungry, right? <laughs> you know, a cat can't imagine what it's like to be you and how you're feeling. 
That's an essential human quality, right? And, you know, when you think about people who are prideful, they lack the ability to empathize because they're so absorbed in self that they can't think of other people. You know, when Paul in the New Testament says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, he's calling on us to empathize. And you know, when you, when you encounter a prideful person, you can always tell because they walk into a room and they're sizing up the crowd, thinking, will these people love me the way that I want to be loved? Will these people understand me? And so their absorption is so great that they're, they're incapable of thinking about other people. I think secondly, when we talk about what it's like to, uh, you know, in what ways does pride cause us to become like an animal? I think the other thing is that when you think about animals, they are incredibly self-centered things, right? Beings, I guess. Um, you know, they, they think about their entire life and really they see themselves as the fulcrum on which the universe totters. And so, you know, I think that when we descend into pride, a lot of times uh, we become self-centered to an extent that it drives people away from us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of others' lives, to exploit the whole universe. And especially it wants to be left to itself to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. I think all of us have felt this before. You know, have you ever noticed how sensitive you feel when somebody's trying to take center stage? Why do you feel that way? Probably because you think that you deserve to take center stage and not that person. And so... We find ourselves avoiding situations where people will upstage us. We find ourselves shying away from opportunities where we think that we could fail by comparison to other people. You know, really, pride is one of those things that drives us to compare ourselves to other people and derive our value from those comparisons. Well, we're told in the aftermath in verse 34, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor, glory, and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. That in and of itself is a miracle. To think that, you know, he, he descended into madness. You know, imagine walking around Babylon and catching old Neb out in the field eating grass, the former king of Babylon. <laughs> oh, there's old Neb again, you know. And then uh, after this period of time, looking to him and seeking out his advice. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that he was restored. And really, it speaks to the fact that God was sovereign. 
Now he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. That's really the point of this, that God is able to humble those who are proud. Okay, let's look at Daniel chapter 5. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Okay, uh, this guy Belshazzar was one of the successors of Nebuchadnezzar. There was maybe a six-year period where there were about four or five kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So becoming the new king of Babylon wasn't like the most popular thing that you would want to become. Uh, Really, the kingdom was in turmoil, and it was very unstable. But it's interesting because this guy Belshazzar, for many, many years, skeptics of the Bible believe that this guy didn't exist. In fact, the author of Daniel fabricated this individual because when you looked at the king's list of Babylon, which we've excavated, his name actually doesn't appear. And yet, modern archaeology has really shown that the Bible is a credible document, that it, that it is, in fact, historical. Um, they uncover, archaeologists uncovered what's called the Nabonidus Cylinder, which is on display at the British Museum. And it's interesting, as they went through and translated the cylinder, it says, as for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sin against your great divinity and give me life until distant days. We know this guy, Nabonidus. In fact, he was the last king of Babylon before Persia overtook Babylon. So we're familiar with this guy, but Belshazzar, he's not included in the king's list at all. But it goes on to say, and as for Belshazzar, my firstborn son, my own child, let the fear of your great divinity be in his heart, and may he commit no sin, and may he enjoy happiness in life. It's interesting. So what this uncovers for us is that Belshazzar, he was actually the co-regent of Babylon alongside his father, Nabonidus. And as Nabonidus was off in Arabia, he decided to leave Belshazzar there in Babylon. We're told that Belshazzar gave this great feast for a thousand of his nobles. You know, you can imagine this guy who's the most, one of the most powerful guys in the world that he's going to throw a great party, that, you know, he's got probably some of the greatest food that money could buy, prepared by some of the greatest chefs in the ancient world. You could just imagine the place settings that he set out for each one of his nobles. And all of this, you know, set probably in his palace. All of this while Babylon was actually under siege. It's interesting, again, we get a little bit of correlation here from other historians in the ancient world. Herodotus, the famous Greek historian in his history says that the walls of Babylon were about 15 or 14 miles long, 300 feet tall, and 75 feet thick. So here are these impregnable walls, and we know from some descriptions that there was a moat that actually surrounded all of Babylon. And so you can just imagine that King Belshazzar, as the Persians are attacking and sieging Babylon, that he's thinking to himself, 
what are they going to do? They can't touch me. I mean, look at Babylon. It's a great city, fortified by these incredible walls. Herodotus actually tells us, here they shut themselves up and made light of Cyrus's siege, having laid in a store of provisions for many years in preparation against this attack. So not only were they fortified by these walls, but they had enough provisions for years, so they're just like, we'll just wait till these guys tire themselves out and, and retire. And so he's like, you know, in the meantime, why don't we throw a big party? Can you imagine that? While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink with them from his, with his nobles, wives, and concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles all drank from them. So he wasn't content just to have the place settings that he arranged. He's like, you know what? Those incredible cups and dishes that we found that my predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, found in Jerusalem, these are finely crafted gold cups. They're just sitting there in a museum. Why don't, we, why don't we go dust off that Jewish china and bring it into my party? And um, really, the motivation behind this, as we'll see, was really to show defiance to God. While they were drinking from them, they praised idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You know, were these items really, you know, um, sacred items that needed to be, like, extolled or worshipped? Probably not. They probably weren't, you know, special in the sense that they had more value than other things. And yet God decided that, you know, he was going to set these things apart as really a representative of himself and his authority. Suddenly, they saw fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. So as they're sitting there partying and all this revelry, suddenly it comes to a standstill. You know, the waitresses stop dead in their tracks. The waiters stop serving the food, and all the nobles you know, seize up as they see this hand writing on the wall. We're told that um, Belshazzar, that he, uh, that he came, he turned pale with fright. You know, he just got pasty from, from this fear and that his knees knocked together. Um, you know, you got to kind of read between the lines. There was probably a little bit of dribble of pee there too. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of honor, will give him a golden chain around his neck, and he'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Um, this is interesting because this would actually fit with our historical reconstruction that Nabonidus was actually the king of Babylon and that his son was co-regent. So all he could offer the person who interpreted this dream was the third position in the kingdom. 
When the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who's, who has with him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, can interpret dreams. He can explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king said to him, I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you're filled with wisdom and insight. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and, they t and tell me their meaning, but they can't. If you can read these words and tell their meaning, you'll be clothed in purple robes. I'll give you a gold chain around your neck and you'll be the third highest in the, in the kingdom. Daniel answered, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I'll tell you what the writing means. I like his defiance, you know. He's just like, keep your stuff, I don't care. But I will tell you what the dream means. Your majesty, the most holy God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart and mind were puffed up in arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal until he learned that the most high rules over kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You're his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. It's interesting. He points to the evidence that was right in front of Belshazzar's face. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar assembled all of his nobles after this event where he you know, went mad for a period of time and taught these guys, look, God is real and let me give you evidence for that. So he knew. He knew that God indeed was sovereign and yet he chose to disrespect God, to blaspheme him. He says, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear or know anything at all. Good point. These gods that are made of wood, iron, stone, those are, those are things that are created things. They can't see or hear. They're not even living. And yet you worship them. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parison. He says, mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighted. You have been weighed on the balances and been not measured up. Parson, meaning divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Can you imagine how Daniel must have felt as Belshazzar responded this way? He's like, did you hear what I just told you? Well, you know, what's the point of being the third highest in the kingdom when your kingdom will be seized from you by the Persians. 
That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So there you have the story. Now, it's interesting because, again, Herodotus gives us a little bit more information about what happens. In his histories, it says, the Persians by the riverside entered the stream which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up the man's thigh, and thus he got into the town. So these guys actually diverted one of the tributaries from the Euphrates away from Babylon so that the water level of the moat sunk down. And we know that there must have been a canal underneath the city leading into the city because otherwise, how could Nebuchadnezzar irrigate his incredible hanging gardens? I mean, this is a semi-arid place. And so when the water level dropped, down to their thighs, they marched in. You can just imagine as they're having this conversation that the Persians are already attacking the city and overthrowing it. Herodotus says, had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about to do or had noticed their danger, they would never allow the Persians to enter the city. And later, uh, if you read the account, it says that they were engaged in revelry that they were out partying instead of paying attention to the Persians who were laying siege to the city. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from Belshazzar's blasphemy? I think, first of all, he rejected abundant evidence. Daniel makes that very clear. He says, you knew all these things, and yet you still decided to disobey God and to shake your fist in defiance of him. You know, Some of us have been sitting through a lot of Bible teaching or maybe we've been reading about Christianity and maybe we've been confronted with abundant evidence. Really, it comes down to, are you gonna make a decision to turn to God? Or will you dismiss all of that evidence like Belshazzar? Secondly, he couldn't see his own mortality. He was blind to the fact that one day, God would overthrow his kingdom, even though God specified that that would happen in Daniel chapter two, and yet he ignored that. And I think many of us sometimes ignore our own own mortality where we're so fixated on the things that we're doing, these tasks that we have set before us, that we're failing to, you know, raise up our head and look further into the future, realizing our time here on earth is very limited. And finally, we learn that we have a limited time to repent. You know, really, we have the length of our life to decide for God. And throughout that time, God will give us numerous opportunities to repent or to turn back to him. Okay. Now, there's, I think we can compare Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. There are things that strike uh, really a contrast between these guys. I think, first of all, both ignored God and at times refused to acknowledge God's sovereignty. And both saw plenty of evidence. What was really the difference between these two guys? I think it came down to one thing, humility. Nebuchadnezzar was willing to humble himself and acknowledge God. James, in James 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we continue to descend in pride, God will oppose us in our pride, our arrogance. 
But if we choose to humble ourselves, to acknowledge that he is real, and that we need him, that we need to depend on him, the Bible teaches that he will give us grace, an unmerited gift. So let's draw a few conclusions. I think first of all, the greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. The more you learn about God, the more he reveals to you through the Bible, that means that you're, you have more responsibility to respond. And you know, some of us might say, well, you know, I'm not really sure after looking at all the evidence. Maybe I'll just make that decision some other time to turn to God. Well, according to the Bible, failing to make a decision is a decision in and of itself. It's a decision to say no to God. Secondly, God will send you voices. He'll send you sleepless nights. He'll send you your Daniels. And the question is, will you see them for who they are, what they are? God trying to get a hold of you, to show you that you need him. Even though you fiercely try to pretend like you don't. And yet most of us in those quiet moments realize that something is missing. Nothing is ever truly satisfying. Maybe that's the reason why you're here tonight. You know, a Daniel brought you here to hear what God has to say. And finally, Jesus became less than he was so that we could be more than what we are. You know, if anybody has the right to feel proud, it's God. And yet the Bible says that God is a humble God. That even though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, making himself nothing taking on the form of a man and eventually dying on the cross. And he did that for us so that we can be forgiven, so that we can experience the free gift of God. And once we receive that, we can experience the joy of humility that the Bible promises. Yeah, Lord, as uh, one author put it, you know, humility is just um, having a sane view of ourselves. It's acknowledging reality that we are dependent beings, that we need you. And um, I pray that you would uh, break down the pride in our hearts, Lord, that blocks us from experiencing the gifts and the grace that you want to give us. And um, I pray, you know, as we grow in our faith that we can become more humble people. We know that that's really um, the way in which um, we receive good things from you. And I pray those, for those of us, Lord, who don't know you, who um, sense in their hearts that they've been blocking you from giving good things to them, and especially the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, that they would, uh, in humility, turn to you and admit that they need you and that they need your forgiveness. And we thank you for anyone who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.